Amen. Our passage this morning is Psalm 22. So I want to invite you to find that with me in your Bible, Psalm 22. And uh, once you find that, once again, we're going to just spend a moment before the Lord uh, and be quiet. And as we're quiet, I, just, I would invite you in particular just to invite the Lord to prepare your heart, to soften your heart. Uh, we come in distracted. We come in running in a mile a minute. It's got a notification on my phone. Some of us have those. It tells me how much screen time I had this week. I'm sobered this morning. Uh, we are just constantly distracted as a people. And so we're going to invite him to prepare us to hear from him today. So let's do that now. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Lord, we come to you, and uh, we've heard from the world. Uh, We've heard from ourselves. Lord, we've repeated thoughts in our head, heard from our friends. But what we need is to hear from our Creator. We need to hear from the God who made us and who loves us. We need to hear truth. We need to see reality. And God, we're coming today expecting that. Lord, I pray that you would help us to come today expecting that. And we thank you, Lord, that you promise us that as your word goes forth, it never, ever, ever returns void. So you will move, you will work, you will change us. We believe that. Lord, help our unbelief. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I mentioned that our passage is Psalm 22. Uh, If you've been tracking along with us through the series in Lament, you know that this has been a different kind of series. Um, We've been uh, spending an extended time at the bottom, and we're used to being at the top, or at least we're used to pretending to be at the top. And it's been challenging for us, but I think also good for us just to be somber. This whole service has has been somber, and it's going to remain somber, and that's appropriate. We're preparing ourselves to see and comprehend and understand what happens in that Holy Week, particularly what's going to happen Good Friday. We're preparing our hearts to resonate with that. And this psalm in particular, unlike all of the rest of the psalms that we've studied, prepares us to understand what we're going to see. Um, We mentioned uh, Psalm 88, if you've been tracking. I think that was the first psalm that we did. And it's the saddest song in the Bible. And it is. But I would argue that Psalm 22 presents us with perhaps the darkest psalm in the Bible. And in order to understand what is so particularly profound about this psalm, I'm actually going to begin our time by reading extensively from Matthew 27. So keep your Bible in Psalm 22, so you're ready to walk through that. But I want you to hear from God's Word. This is Matthew 27, beginning in verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and they kept watch over him. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. 
so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is the opening line of our psalm for this morning. As Jesus Christ bore the sins of the world on the cross, he pressed up with his nail-pierced hands, which would have been excruciatingly painful so that he could draw a breath, and with that breath, he declared the opening words of this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Charles Spurgeon is right when he declares of our psalm for this morning, this is beyond all others the psalm of the cross. Church, before we go any further, I want you to understand that we're on holy ground this morning. This is a sacred text. The Holy Spirit spoke through the prophet David a thousand years before the birth of Christ, and he gave voice to the anguish and the agony and the suffering that was to be endured at Calvary. Did David realize that he was penning the the voice of the suffering servant? when he wrote this psalm? Did David realize that he was writing the song that would be cried out on the day that the world changed forever? In all likelihood, David wrote better than he knew. In all likelihood, David wrote of of experiences in his own life using poetic, hyperbolic language. Nevertheless, the Holy Spirit spoke through David to include imagery and details that pointed forward with exact precision to the crucifixion of our Savior. And Charles Spurgeon gives us wise counsel as we come to this text. He says, David and his afflictions may be here in a very modified sense, but as the star is concealed by the light of the sun, he who sees Jesus will probably neither see nor care to see David. I think that's exactly right. And that's going to shape how we approach the text. We're not going to walk through our passage this morning asking the question, what was David experiencing when he wrote these words that so closely align with the cross? We're not going to do that. And we're not going to spend much time this morning asking the question of, have you ever felt like your lot, your clothes were being uh, given away as the lots were cast for them? We're not going to do that. Psalm 22 is prophetic. Psalm 22 points forward. Psalm 22 presents us with the psalm of the cross. When Jesus hung on the cross for our sins, he cried out and directed our attention to this psalm. So the question we're going to ask is, why is that? What are we meant to hear in this cry? That's our question. What are we meant to hear? As we listen to this psalm, it's almost as if we're lifted up to see what Jesus saw and to feel what he felt from the cross. He describes his surroundings. He describes his pain. As Alec Mateer cautions, he says, Psalm 22 is such holy ground that we take off our shoes and walk with careful 
even hesitant steps. More than any other passage of Scripture, it penetrates into the actual suffering of our crucified Lord. So this morning we're going to listen in with reverence and gratitude to the song that was cried out from the cross. And as we do that, we're going to consider the powerful notes that this song has, is resounding out from Calvary. What are we to hear in this cry? Well, first, we're to hear a cry of rejection. Look with me now to Psalm 22. We're going to consider the psalm in parts, and we're going to begin at verses 1 to 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Over the last month, we've been considering how the Psalms of Lament give voice to those seasons in our life when we feel like God is not listening. Right? And, and we've experienced these seasons, if we're honest. Seasons when we're, we're praying, but we feel like our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. Seasons when we're crying out in despair, but it feels like God is turning His face away and leaving us in the darkness. And it is a horrifying thing when you're in that season. And perhaps some of you are in it today. It's a horrifying thing when you pray and you feel as if God is far from you. What we discover in Psalm 22 is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, knows what it is to feel rejected by God. With respect to His humanity, Jesus felt the horror of the Father turning His face away. He felt abandoned to His enemies. He cried out in desperation, and He heard utter silence in response. I want you to think about that for a moment. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity who has forever existed in perfect harmony and unity with the Godhead, willingly, purposefully entered into a season of feeling utter God-forsakenness. If we had the capacity to understand how profound that is, it would change us forever. If we could catch a glimpse, if, if we could just get a fraction of the reality of, of of what happened at the cross, we wouldn't play around with sin ever again. If we could see a glimpse of it, we would rush out into the streets and tell the world what God has done for us. This is a scandal. Defies comprehension. Do you know who deserves to be forsaken by the Father? I do. You do. Sinners who sin against a holy God deserve to be forsaken by the Father, but the sinless Son of God absolutely, positively did not deserve this. And yet, in order that sinners like me and sinners like you could be saved, in order that God's glory could be displayed, Jesus felt the undiluted wrath of God against sin. And it was awful. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus entered into an unspeakable anguish that He did not deserve so that we as sinners could have a way of escape from the anguish that we do deserve. 
He soaked up all of our sin, and He removed it from us as far as the east is from the west. And in doing so, He felt a God-forsakenness that we will never, ever be able to comprehend. He did this to glorify God by setting sinners free. The Apostle Peter tells us, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. When Jesus cried out the words of Psalm 22 from the cross, it was a cry of rejection. But that's not all we're meant to hear. It was also a cry of humiliation. Listen to verses 3 to 8. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Sometimes it can be disillusioning to witness God's faithfulness to others when it feels like he hasn't shown that faithfulness to you, when he's left you to languish. And perhaps you felt that. You were both pleading with God for a job. And he got one, and you didn't. Both pleading that God would open your womb. She has a baby, you don't. Both pleading that God would, would bring that special person into your life, and, and, and they're happy, and you're alone. Both suffering from a chronic illness. He's healed, and you're still suffering, and you're happy for them, and that's complicated. But there's a sense in which their victory only amplifies your defeat. Their victory proves that God is faithful, but it begs the question, why is He leaving me here languishing in this way? We catch a glimpse of that here in verses 3-5. to The sinful Israelites, the grumbling, grumbling, rebellious Israelites who deserved the rejection of God, who, who deserved all of the judgment that they experienced, they cried out to God. And you know what happened? He delivered them. Their holy God heard their cry and He lifted them up and delivered them. And yet here, Jesus, bearing the sins of the world, cries out from the cross. He receives no such rescue. The One who hung the stars in their place had descended even beneath the plight of sinful men. He'd become a worm. He had absorbed the curse of sin in such a way that no human has or ever will. As Jesus hung on the cross, He assumed in His flesh every sin that has been committed in the history of the world. He had become like a sponge fully saturated with the venom of sin. He felt God's righteous wrath against every heinous war crime. He felt God's righteous wrath against every case of child abuse. He felt God's righteous wrath against the most heinous, gross, wicked sins that you can imagine. The very worst thing that you've ever done, the thing that whenever it pops back into your memory makes you ashamed, makes you want to change the channel, Jesus bore that in His flesh on the cross. 
was placed on him. And under the guilt and shame of all of the sin of the world, Jesus no longer felt like a human being. He felt like a worm. William Plumer says here, low as believers may sink, their Savior sank lower. As low as we sink, as low as our lament goes, as desperate as our cry becomes, we'll never sink lower than the place where Christ was when he hung on the cross for our sin. And again, we acknowledge that our minds are too small to even begin to understand the scandal of this, that Jesus, the author of the universe, is describing himself as a worm. Not only did he humble himself to become a man, he humbled himself to become less than a man in order that he might save us. And that level of condescension, that level of scandalous, self-sacrificing love is unlike anything that we will ever comprehend. For example, we're all enthralled right now with, with President Zelensky, and rightfully so. Here is a, here's a president who has every excuse to hide, has every excuse to find a way to keep himself safe, and yet he's standing in solidarity with his people. He's, he's going to battle, putting himself at, at great risk because he doesn't see himself as above the rest. And the world is seeing that and the world is loving that, aren't we? we and we honor this man. But Jesus left his heavenly throne. Can we begin to comprehend? He didn't come down to stand with his peers. He came down to stand with his enemies, with his creatures who sinned against him. He came down to a people who are so far beneath so as to lift us up. And as he did that, we mocked him. We said, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. If he's the, if he's the beloved, he's the Son of God. It was the height of humiliation. The Creator hung naked on a cross while his creatures abused, insulted, and taunted him. As he cried out the words of Psalm 22, it was a cry of rejection. It was also a cry of humiliation. And we see in the next verses, it was also a cry of unimaginable pain. Look with me at verses 9 to 21. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. But, but you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. 
my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Before we go any further, I do want to point out the fact that there are little glimpses and glimmers of hope scattered throughout this psalm. In verses 3 to 5, you remember God's faithfulness to Israel. Here in the beginning of, of this section, he declares that God preserved him from his earliest days. Meaning, even as Jesus endured a pain that was unlike any pain that has ever been endured, he never spoke against his God. As we bring our lament to God, we need to follow this example that we see in Scripture. We can and we should express our fears. I hope that we come away from this series understanding that. We can and we should express our questions. We can express our pain to God. But as we do that, we should never call into question His goodness. Even in the height of Jesus' suffering, He never misspoke about God. And that is remarkable because, oh, how he suffered. Ben Myers notes, to be crucified was to be cast out of the human community, rejected by God and the world. It was literally a fate worse than death. And in these verses, it's vividly portrayed the experience of Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. Once again, I want to remind you of Alec Machir's warning that this is holy ground. Here we are invited the psalmist is, is almost lifting us up, inviting us to look out with Christ from the cross and to see what he saw, to hear the taunts, to, to get a sense of what he felt. As he looked out, he saw soldiers laughing as they gambled for his cloak as he hung naked. He saw the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders the men who spend their lives studying the Scriptures, the men who are the ones who, above all else, should have recognized Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and yet they were taunting Him and mocking Him. He saw a crowd of people, and they were an angry crowd, and they were staring at Him with delight, with glee, as they watched Him slowly and painfully die, soaking it all in for their own pleasure. He describes this scene as if he were surrounded by wild, fierce bulls surrounding him, preparing to gore him. Like there was a lion that was pursuing him, waiting to devour him. Like there were dogs just waiting to pounce upon the corpse. Physically, his body was ruined. He had been poured out like water, he says. There has never been a man more courageous than Jesus. But in that moment, he says, his heart melted like wax. He was fastened to the beams of the cross with nails that were driven through his hands and feet. As he hung from those nails, his joints dislocated. Every breath would have caused agonizing pain. As a result of the 39 lashes that he had received before the crucifixion, what little skin that remained on his back and his chest was flayed and shredded. So these bystanders who delighted to watch him suffer could literally see his bones as they looked at his naked, emaciated body. Charles Spurgeon says it powerfully. The first Adam made us all naked. And therefore, the second Adam became naked, that he might clothe our naked souls. There has never been, there will never be, a scene more grotesque and horrific 
than the day when we tortured our Creator and laughed as He died. This was betrayal at its very worst. This was cosmic treason. And this was the cross. When we sing about the cross and pray about the cross and wear the cross, this is what we are to see. Before we go any further, we're going to stop for a moment and we're just going to be quiet. I want to invite you to just honor the Lord for what he's done for us. When Jesus cried out the words of Psalm 22, it was a cry of rejection. It was a cry of humiliation. It was a cry of unimaginable pain. And yet, as Jesus cried out the words of Psalm 22, it was also mysteriously, wonderfully, gloriously, surprisingly, a cry of victory. It was a cry of victory. A most unexpected note rang out from the darkest hour of the darkest day in the history of the world. Tucked away in the middle of this psalm, when it appears that the lament has descended into the depth of hell itself, something happens. Look again at verses 20 to 21. He cries out, Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And then, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. This shift just comes out of nowhere at the center of this psalm. And from this moment on, absolutely everything changes. What was the darkest, saddest, deepest song of the depths of our sorrow that we could ever imagine suddenly shifts. And he says, you have delivered me. Psalm 22 is somehow simultaneously a song of victory. It must have been so confusing reading this psalm before the cross. This dramatic turn. How it is that the psalmist turns from an unimaginable sorrow to victory, and yet it's at the cross where we understand that this was, in fact, a cry of victory. And what a shock it must have been for the devil. The devil who delights to see God's people enslaved to sin. The devil who must have just been over the moon excited when he saw the Son of God hanging from the cross. He must have been delighted as he heard people mocking and scoffing. He must have been overjoyed when he heard Jesus praying this prayer of anguish and lament, and yet it would seem that the devil forgot how Psalm 22 ends. As he struck what he thought was the death blow, he was shocked to find that the death of Christ was actually the way of victory and deliverance. One old preacher said this so well. I have to share this with you. Speaking of Jesus, this old preacher says, He, coming to perform the great work of redemption, did cover and hide His Godhead within the worm of His human nature. And the grand water serpent, Leviathan, the devil, thinking to swallow the worm of his humanity, was caught upon the hook of his divinity. By thinking to destroy Christ, he destroyed his own kingdom and lost his own power forever. The death of Jesus disarmed the accuser and opened the door for the captives. The death of Jesus paved the way for the life 
everlasting. The death of Jesus was victory. This is the mystery of our faith. This is where we find life. But why? How? Well, when Jesus died, covered as he was in the sin of the world, he satisfied the wrath of God against our sin. Imagine it this way. It was as if he assumed all of our debt in his body, and then he took all of that debt to the the bank of death to pay it off for us. But then, and this is the part that the devil didn't seem to anticipate, death couldn't hold Jesus. Because as Jesus descended to death, it became clear that death had no claim on Jesus. Because death is the penalty for sinful men. But Jesus was no sinful man. He was the sinless God-man. And so he came to the bank, and he paid for all of our sin, and then he took the keys of death and hell, and he walked back out of the tomb victorious. And everything changed. In one fell swoop, justice was served. In one fell swoop, a way was made for forgiveness and restoration to be doled out to the nations. In one fell swoop, a way was made for every song of lament to turn to a song of praise. In one fell swoop, Jesus proved that down is the way up. And he ends this song with an invitation and worship, and celebration, and a feast that he longs to share with the nations. And so we're going to read now from verses 22 to the end, and you're going to notice that the tune of this song has changed dramatically. Beginning at the end of verse 21, he says, You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen, and I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. For He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Even when it seemed like He did. He has not hidden His face from Him, but has heard when He cried to Him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. He has done it. Psalm 22 ends with deliverance and vindication and a celebration that blesses the nations. Now the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Now the one who cries out and feels as if he is not heard by the Lord can say, he has heard my cry. Jesus has prepared a feast and he has invited everyone without distinction to join him and to receive life and life everlasting. You see, the cross is the answer to the problem of sin. 
The cross is the answer to the problem of lament when everything feels like it's broken. The cross is the answer to the problem of evil. It is the hope for those who feel like they're forever separated from God. It's the place where death and darkness were dethroned and disarmed once and for all, and it ends with the declaration, He has done it. And you can't hear that without hearing Jesus declare from the cross, the same cross where He declared, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With His final breath, He declared, It is finished. It's finished. Do you believe that this morning? Finished. There is nothing that Jesus' death accomplished that you can add to. It's done. He did it. No self-loathing. Nothing left for you to earn. Nothing left for you to appease. Jesus said, it is finished. Oh, that we would believe that, brothers and sisters. It's done. It's done. And we walk around and we carry this extra guilt and shame and we try to take some of that guilt from the cross and say, I'll carry this, Jesus. He says, no, you don't need to. It is finished. John Piper says this so well. He says, God took the record of all of your sins that made you a debtor to wrath. And instead of taking all that sin and holding it up in front of your face and using it as a warrant to send you to hell, which, by the way, isn't that what it feels like sometimes? Sometimes we feel like God's just got our sin and He's just wagging it in our face. You know, feel rotten. Feel rotten. How could I love you? That's not what God did. Rather, God put them in the palm of His Son's hand and He drove a spike through them into the cross. And it's finished. If you have turned from your sin, that is, if you've repented, if you've confessed your sin and you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ and you believe that He took your sin on the cross and that He paid for your sin on the cross, it's done. You're forgiven. You're going to live forever. Just like that. That is the scandal of the cross. I wonder if you've seen it. I wonder if you've seen it. And Jesus, as He cries out and He says, rescue me, and He, and he cries out, He has delivered me, and that song turns to praise and joy. What's the first thing He does? He comes down and He declares it to His brothers, which is what we saw on Easter Sunday. He went and He said, that, gather the disciples. And tell them, I'm going to meet with them. And He comes and He shares the good news with His people, and that's us. That death is defeated. That it doesn't have the final word that there's forgiveness for sin, that there's life everlasting, and that it's ours in Christ, that it's being accomplished. And I worry that sometimes, particularly for us living in this culture and thinking the way that we do, we just can't, we're always like, what's the catch? I don't, what is, I, there must be something in the fine print, something that I need to do, something that I need to add to. I probably need to lash myself, or I probably need to go make a confession to the priest, or I probably need to, to pray this prayer ten times. And Jesus says, no, it's done. It's done. And when we see that, and when we understand that, everything changes. Jesus says, come, join me in the feast. You who are poor, come and join me in the feast. Eat and live forever. You, you who are rich, he says, you come to the feast too. He says, I'm inviting everyone. I'm inviting not just this generation, but he says, we're going to declare this in posterity. We're going to declare this to the ones who aren't yet born. We're going to tell everyone and their friends that there is a feast and you can come and you don't need to pay. And when you eat, you live forever. And Jesus declared, my body is the bread, take and eat. My blood is the wine, take and drink. 
It's done. So, maybe you're here today and you haven't come. Maybe you're here today and you're still trying to deal with this debt of your own accord. You're thinking, if I just live a good enough life, if I work hard enough, if I volunteer enough, if I'm a good enough husband, good enough father, if I'm a good enough employee, then one day when I stand before God, God will weigh it all out and he'll say, you know what, in the grand scale of things, I think you did all right. That's not how it works. The wages for sin is death. Our sin separates us from God. But Jesus has borne all of that in his body on the cross. And if you will look to him today, you will be saved. And you don't need to even pray with me after the service. You don't need to come talk. You don't even need to pray with the person next to you. Right now, you can deal with the Lord and you can confess your sin and you can say, I need Jesus to pay for my sin on the cross. And when you pray that in faith, it's finished. So, come. Come to the feast that Jesus has prepared for you. Join in the celebration that you were made to delight in. Lift your voice in the song that you were made to sing. Tell your neighbors, tell your mama, tell your friends. Pass it on to your children. Pass it on to your grandchildren. Tell anyone who will listen. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he has done it. He has done it. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, it, Lord, it breaks my heart that there's no, uh, no words I can put together that can faithfully capture the mystery and the glory of the cross. And Lord, as I look, and I've been meditating all week and trying to put this down, I feel like my stammering tongue just can't even begin to express an inch of it. And even as I sober my mind and I meditate with my heart, I could barely scratch the surface of, of what's happened here. Lord, we just confess that we need your help. Lord, these are spiritual things. They're spiritually discerned. I ask in Jesus' name that you would open the eyes of the blind today in this place. I pray that we would see that we need a Savior and that he has come and that his name is Jesus. I pray that you would bring faith where there is no faith. God, I pray that you would undermine and usurp all of the doubt. Lord, I pray that you would knock down all of the pride that would put us in a position to judge you. God, I pray that you would cause hard-hearted, rebellious men and women to bow down and bend the knee and to receive life and life everlasting. Oh God, would you do it? And Lord, I pray for those who have profess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, those who would declare that they believe all of this is true, and yet who carry the guilt and the weight of their sin on their shoulders day after day, who have, who have been convinced by the evil one that they need to walk around in condemnation and guilt and shame when your word clearly says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I pray that you'd set the captives free today. Lord, I pray that you would Soften our hearts. Lord, we, we confess that uh, these hearts are stone apart from your grace. Uh, would you give us hearts of flesh today? I pray that today would be a day of salvation. I pray that today would be a day of 
joy and delight. I pray that today would be a day of reverence and awe. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me, for your people here in this place, for the generations that were before us and the generations that are after us. Thank you for bearing in your flesh the very worst things that I've ever done, that that I would be horrified if they were announced before the congregation, and yet you took them, and you owned them, and you paid for them, and you settled them. Uh, Lord Jesus, we, we love you. Oh, we love you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for that rugged cross, my salvation, where, where your love poured out over me. My soul cries out, hallelujah. Praise and honor to you, Lord Jesus. So God, we thank you and we praise you, and Lord, as we respond to you now with an extended time of singing. And Lord, as we pray a prayer of confession, I pray that you would be pleased with the hearts of your people. Lord, that as we respond to you, God, that you would move in us in a mighty way. Lord, as we give to you, you're so generous. You just, you just heap it back on us. You fill up our tank. You, you fill us up with your love. But Lord, we want to give you praise right now. And so be pleased with us, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Would you stand and sing?